Hi everyone, welcome to Radically Normal. This is Michael, I'm here with Andre, and today we're joined with a special guest. It's a privilege to talk to him. We're with Dr. Tom Schreiner, who's a professor of New Testament at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Schreiner, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be with you. And so today we're going to be talking about the Reve- about the book of Revelation. But real quick before that, do you want to introduce yourself further? Yeah, well, I've been teaching. Actually, I'm in my 39th year of teaching. I, I can't believe it. Where have all those years gone? Um, but I taught three years at a school called Azusa Pacific in uh, the Los Angeles area. 11 years at uh, Bethel Seminary in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. And now this is my 25th, I hope, hopefully I've got the math right here, 25th year at Southern. And I also, you know, just in terms of ministry things I've done, I, I was a preaching pastor 17 years at uh, Clifton Baptist. I'm still, I'm still an elder there, serving there. And yeah, it's been, you know, it's been amazing. I feel so blessed to have been able to do this for so many years. I mean, what a what a blessing to study and to teach God's word and to write about it. Um, that is that has been an amazing, amazing blessing. Yeah, you know, it's we, it's really funny. We actually had your son Patrick on our podcast. For uh, anyone uh, who's listening, you guys should go check out. Um, our other episode about the ascension of Christ um, with Patrick Schreiner. Uh, so maybe you can ask, maybe he remembers us a little bit, but we, we interviewed him as well about a year ago, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, then I, I'm sure I listened to it, you know, because I don't, I don't think I watched it because I, I listened to most, but he had a lot of podcasts on the ascension and I listened to like five or six of them. So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. He's uh Patrick's doing great work. I'm, you know, I'm so proud of him and it's amazing how much he's written and I think really helpful things. I think his newest book on the visual word, I mean, I'm requiring that in my classes because my intro classes, because I don't know if you've seen that book, but it's so helpful in um, giving you a picture of what each book of the Bible, New Testament is about, although he's going to do an Old Testament version too. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he's just doing good. We, we recently did a conference together in Kansas city at Midwestern where he teaches. Mm -hmm. That was, that was really fun. And then we did one last uh, July in um, in uh, California at Compass Bible Institute in uh, Southern in the Los Angeles area. I bet those are really fun because not, there's not many father son duos that are, uh, teaching and writing so much. That's awesome. And uh, yeah. so, so today we're going to talk about uh, the book of Revelation. You have that, that new book coming out with Crossway in November. You've written a shorter commentary already. And to my understanding, you're writing a longer one. So just getting into the book in your commentary, in your, when you're writing about Revelation to you, what's the central theme of the book? What do you think that people should see as the focus as John um, writes the entire book? Yeah, I, well, I actually think you could answer that question different ways. I mean, I, I think you could say the central theme from one perspective is God wins, right? Mm-hmm. God conquers. God's victorious. Evil doesn't win. There's a cosmic conflict. There, there's good and evil in the world. How's it going to end up? I mean, what would the ne- 
secular person say, well, I guess, you know, an atheist would say that, you know, the world will just slowly die out and that's it. Um, but we, we have this conflict between good and evil, but God, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they, they triumph ultimately through, through the cross of Christ. So I think that's a very central theme. I think if you flip it and look at it from another angle, I think the central exhortation for the readers is since God wins and since there's, there's evil in this world, an evil system, evil forces, you've got to choose the right side. And I think he's saying to the believers, don't compromise, Be, endure to the end, you will be rewarded. So, you know, those, those two themes, you know, they, they, they're integrated together, aren't they? You know, God, God wins, there's a great reward, uh, there, there's a great battle going on though. And, and I think we sense that today as Christians. And I think one, you know, one good thing about being a post-Christian society, I think most of it isn't good, but uh, obviously Christians have never been the majority, I would argue true believers, but there was a, a substantial Christian influence in our society that's uh, fast disappearing. And one, and one good thing about that is we recognize, we recognize that we are um, distinct from the world and, that, and, and hopefully we recognize we're not to compromise with it. We're, we're in that battle today, which is why I love the book of Revelation. I don't think it's a book written for, oh, and far off in the future, this book will really relate to that last generation. And isn't it great to read about that and know what's going to happen in the last seven years of history or whatever? But I would argue we're living, we're living the reality of that book right now. Actually, I would argue Christians have been living the reality of that book all through history. We've been living through that book. And that's a huge thing for me. The book of Revelation isn't it isn't some far off vision. It's it's about our lives as Christians today. That's that's really really good. Maybe uh, thinking of it from the the other another, a different angle. Uh, what would you say is the biggest mistake that people make when they come to the Book of Re Revelation, um, or I guess potentially uh, where have we been misled um, in reading uh, the book? Yeah, Andre, that's a that's a great question and. I do think, you know, well, there's different interpretive schemes, you know, and I, I mean, I want to say up front, I respect and honor people who read it differently from me. So when I say what's the biggest interpretive mistake, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to diss or <laughs> against those who have different views. <laughs> Right, because you know, even everything I say is refracted through my understanding of the book, and I, I recognize some people see it differently. So, but then I'd say, I think one of the big interpretive mistakes. Having said that, one of the big interpretive mistakes is to, is to relegate it mainly to the future, which is basically how I was taught the book. You know, from chapter four on, the church is raptured. That's all very interesting, and uh, but it really doesn't relate very much to us. You know, we're, we're all happy with chapter four and five, I guess, relates a little more to us. God is creator, Christ is redeemer. But after that, it's, uh, it's to the end of history. So, you know, some people interpret it that way. I respect that view, but I, 
I think that's an interpretive mistake. I think a second very common interpretive mistake is the failure to read it as apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. So that people read the images, or at least they try to, literally. Actually, no one reads the whole book literally. Nobody thinks that the beast that comes out of the sea in chapter 13 is actually a beast. So, you know, some people will say, well, read the book literally, but nobody reads the book literally. But but then what would they what would someone say? Well, read it literally if you can. But I mean, <laughs> Yeah. So that if it's all possible to read it literally, obviously the beast is not literally a beast. But but then I think we'd say hermeneutically, is that 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 does now it sounds like you've already decided what to do in advance. No, instead we should recognize, okay, we got a beast coming out of the sea, Satan's described as a dragon. We've got images here, we've got symbols. That doesn't mean what the book is talking about isn't real. <laughs> it is real. But we've got to we've got to translate what these symbols and images are. And I think a mistake some people make is they they read at least a lot of the symbols literally when they're not meant to be taken literally. Uh, so I mean, here's another example. You know, the seven spirits of God. Now, I would argue the seven spirits of God are the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But there's not seven Holy Spirits, right? That number is used symbolically to describe the fullness of who the Holy Spirit is. So this is uh, what I'm talking about right now is absolutely crucial in reading the book. How how do you read the symbols in the book? If I can say one more thing, I know people who say, well, Revelation isn't apocalyptic, but it's prophecy. So that's one thing some people say. It's not apocalyptic and it's prophecy, and therefore we should take it literally. In one way, I don't even care what you call it. Call it prophet. I think it is apocalyptic. But even if you call it prophecy, it doesn't solve the problem because you still have these symbols and you still have to interpret them. And nobody takes all the symbols literally. Is that is there a literal chain on Satan in Revelation 20? I mean, nobody believes that, right? There's not, I mean, Satan's a spirit. There's no literal chain on him. It's a picture, right? Now, what the picture means, that that can be hard, right? Uh, We we can differ, but to to say that we're going to interpret an apocalyptic book literally, if you mean by that what the author means, I'm fine with it. But if you mean the symbols have to have to be interpreted literally that makes no sense and people and nobody does it they just don't um so i think that's crucial and vital that that's that's really really good and you know actually kind of a a follow-up to that question um you know you talked a bit about the symbols and um at least so over the summer and then going into the semester michael had you know spent some time talking through revelation to a group of uh, guys that we meet with every week, and we talked a lot about the symbols um, and the different uh, representations of Satan um, and, you know, the dragon, the beast that you dis- that you discussed. But, you know, this question is more so, you know, with all the numbers and the, and the symbolism we see with the numbers. Um, so there are a lot of numbers in Revelation. Um, you know, you have the 144,000, the 24 elders. Um, you know, how do we go about interpreting, you know, these, uh, all the numbers that we see 
Um, and how should people, you know, read the book and understand what John is writing about through uh, some of these numbers? Yeah, yeah. And some of the numbers are more challenging than others. But we do, we recognize reading the book, John loves seven, the number seven. You know, you have seven churches, which I think are historical churches as well. But it's no accident that he has, that there's seven, right? You have, uh, and many uses of, uh, you know, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. And he likes, so I think we can even say, well, that goes back to creation. The world was created in seven days. Now, I think the way there are seven spirits of God, as I just talked about. So I think it's clear, you know, John's appropriating um, some of these numbers um, symbolically. Now, not everybody agrees with that, but I think he does that as well with the word 12. There's 12 tribes and 12 apostles. Okay, yes, there literally were 12 tribes and 12 apostles. I'm not, I'm not denying that. But I think John plays on that number as well. The 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Uh, now, there are good people I love and respect who think that's a literal number. I find that very unlikely. I think it's clear that John's playing on that number, multiplying 12 times 12 times 1,000. Or right in the New Jerusalem, it's uh, what, um, I forget, 144 stadia or whatever. But it's but if you look at the exact number in miles, that the city's 1,500 miles high 15 miles 1500 miles uh, wide and 1500 miles long now there are people who take that literally but i think that's very unlikely as you know that city would be you know half halfway up, uh, from coast to coast halfway through the united states and what does it mean to have a city that's 1500 miles high you know i mean I, so I think to interpret those numbers in a literal fashion is just just mistaken. Instead, instead, well, when we talk about that, what is John saying? I would argue with 144,000, you, if you paired this with the uncountable multitude in the same chapter, it's John's way of saying this is the perfect number of the redeemed. Uh, these are those who are sealed from God's wrath. Why does he describe the city in terms of uh, the twelves? Because it's the perfect place to reside. So, you know, it's I, I think it's impossible to prove a certain interpretation at this point. You could take those numbers literally. Some people do. But given the symbolism in the rest of the book, and I think it's clear that we have symbolic numbers in other cases. I think it's more likely that these numbers should be interpreted uh, symbolically. Oh, I totally agree. And as Andre mentioned, I got to lead a Bible study through that. And uh, I hope Andre isn't hearing some of this for the first time, because I, I totally agree with everything you said. And so something I tried to do in our Bible study was point out, I mean, there's so much uh, in Revelation, going back to, you know, books like Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Genesis, the plagues in Exodus, and more. So um, I've kind of read in different commentaries that scholars say there's somewhere between like 500 and 630 Old Testament allusions or references in the book. But what couple books would you say in the Old Testament are the most important for understanding Revelation? Yeah. Well, the, uh, Michael, the first thing 
I want to say is such an important hermeneutical principle, and that is one reason we have a hard time understanding Revelation is we don't know our Old Testaments very well. Amen. Amen. I, I love that. Yeah, so since we don't know the Old Testament, then we then then we we resort to what I call at least some people resort to what I call newspaper eschatology. <laughs> well, instead of reading the scriptures in terms of the Old Testament, they read it in light of current events. And if you've been alive a long time like I have, then you've seen, oh, it shifts as history shifts, you know? So, you know, the the beast is Russia, then it's Saddam Hussein, and then whatever the 200 million are China, and what whatever, and on and on it goes. So I think it's a very, very arbitrary. So when we look at when we look at what's you the, the books that are used, I think almost everyone would agree, clearly Daniel. Daniel's very fundamental. In fact, Greg Beale in his commentary argues that the whole book is shaped by the book of Daniel. I actually don't agree with that, but I think I think that Daniel's very formative. I mean, there's no doubt about that, and Beale's work is fantastic. And then uh, clear, the book of Ezekiel is all over the place. Actually, there have been several dissertations written on the use of the book of Ezekiel in Revelation. Oh, which I I yeah, well, yeah, well, some of them are in different languages, but maybe you know those. Um, Greg Beale wrote his dissertation on the use of uh, Daniel and Revelation. And then um, Isaiah, and, and there's a dissertation on the use of Isaiah in Revelation as well. So I'd say, yeah, those are probably the mo three most important. Although, although, yeah, there's so many allusions to the Old Testament. It's just, uh, it's amazing how the Old Testament is woven through this book. That's, that's really, really good. And, and moving away from some of the um, more, so the questions about how, how we should interpret and how we should go about um, reading and understanding. Um, another question I wanted to ask was one thing that I saw as we were studying the book of Revelation was that there's a lot of mirroring between how God acts and how God operates um, and how Satan, um, mm. you know, mm. is attempting uh, to deceive us. Mm. Um, so the biggest thing that, you know, I saw and, and really spoke to me was uh, that we see like this parody or this false trinity um, mm. Mm. with the dragon and the beast um, and the second beast. And, you know, and I saw a lot more of this throughout the, the rest of the book. So how does knowing about, the fact that Satan operates um, in this way, how does that help us as believers? Um, and, and can you speak a little bit about how Satan operates in these parallels? Yeah, yeah, well, I think you're exactly right. You know, you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Spirit, but then you have the unholy trinity, which you uh, referred to, right? The dragon, the beast, the first beast, and the second beast, who is also called the false prophet, which is interesting, right? Because the spirit in Revelation is the spirit of revelation, the spirit of prophecy, especially, you know, when you, how is the, the Holy Spirit used in the book of Revelation? It's the, the focus is on the spirit of prophecy and revelation. And then, um, you know, the, uh, the beast parodies the lamb, doesn't he? And the, the first beast, and that he's got a so-called resurrection 
from the dead. So, uh, yeah, and there are other parallels as well. I mean, you have signs and wonders being done and so forth and so on. Um, So I think the pastoral impact is what I think you're asking me is I think John is telling his readers, we need to be uh, discerning because it's it the the parallels are such that we we could see indications in this world of so-called redemption and liberation and freedom coming uh from the unholy trinity and that's really what the world always offers doesn't it the what secular people you know they don't say well you know, follow us and we'll lead you to death. <laughs> no, one, no one wants that. No, they say, and, and I think they believe it. They're deceived, right? They say our path is the path to life. And we see this very strongly, right? If you follow the Christian faith, it's actually in their in their mind, the Christian faith is something that uh, is, uh, is hateful, um, not everybody says that, but some do, and that uh, it destroys life and freedom and joy. So, and they, and their argument is, hey, we we have the path to freedom and liberation and joy, but we know something, and we have compassion on them because they're unbelievers. We know something that they don't know. We know that they're actually deceived by the dragon, and so uh, we know that. Uh, what they think is like, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death, right? Says the proverb. And we know that's what's happening here. And we know that, you know, it, and then there's a system, right? I mean, we can also bring in Babylon, which is not part of the unholy Trinity, but there's a system at work. There are forces politically, socially, culturally that support that message. And it's, it seems very compelling you know, um, people want to say now, oh, well, look, Christianity's fading. It's in the dustbin of history. Secularism and the, uh, the our way of thinking now, it will actually triumph. It's more loving. It's more kind. It's more generous. It isn't judgmental and so forth and so on. And that message, that message is, has huge purchase in our society today. Because even reading Revelation, I'm reading commentators who say, well, John's hateful. He believes in judgment. That's a very hateful message. We reject, and he believes that ultimately God will violently punish his enemies. Oh, that's, that is hateful and destructive. And we, and they'll say over against John, we renounce all use of hate and violence. So, so, you know, it's fascinating. Even people writing about Revelation, some of them, I think, we say with compassion and love, but they're deceived by the dragon. <laughs> they're actually reading Revelation and saying, oh, no, we have a better way. So um, that's, a, I think, a, a very profound truth. You know, we tend to think individualistically as evangelicals, but there's systems out there. You know, what does Revelation say? You know, there's the city of man. There's human culture. There's human governments. There's human structures, religions, and and societies and governments, and they're um, they're opposed to the things of God. So we need to be alert and we need to be vigilant. God can use government, right? Romans thirteen to for order and 
civility in society. But also, what is John telling us? The government can also become an antichrist, a beast. It can it can become a totalitarian entity that persecutes the people of God. So um, it's not. We're, we're so used to thinking in evangelicals in terms of our private private individual lives, but there's a corporate, uh, societal, cultural, governmental danger and uh, by which we're deceived that we need to be on guard against. That's so good. And that's so applicable because I think, again, maybe this goes back to how people were trained to read it as more futuristic than it, like, it doesn't feel as applicable, but the book is. So I love that. And so uh, Andre, let me ask a couple what I hope are just quicker questions, and then uh, he'll he'll ask another question about the book in particular. But um, what I've never actually gotten to ask anybody this, so I'm super excited to ask this. What what's your commentary writing process like? How do you write about Revelation? How have you gone about that? Well, you know, everybody does it differently. But what I did, of course, I'd already, I'd already written a smaller commentary on Revelation for. Crossway, the ESV expository commentary. So what I did this time, I mean, that one, I forget how many words that one was, but the, right now I've written about 400,000 words. So wow. this, this one's wow. longer. Um, I, so what I did is I sat down with my Greek New Testament, my, my Nestle Allen, which is a edition of the Greek New Testament. And I actually, I just went through and I wrote the whole thing. I just wrote it down with my Greek New Testament, looking up parallels, using my, you know, my dictionaries and lexicons, um, and I just wrote it out. So that's what I, that's that's what I did the first time. I mean, I already had an outline. I I looked. I kept basically. I think I kept my outline from the SV expository commentary. I forget how I got that outline. It was too long ago. Um, but so I wrote it out. Then I. After I wrote it out, I, I looked at all the secondary sources, not all, I looked, I should say, I looked at many secondary sources and I <laughs> and I integrated them into my commentary. So I did that for a long time because there's a ton of things written. Right. I mean, I've written, I, I've, I've not, not written, I've read probably over 30 commentaries on Revelation and many monographs and many articles. So I did that for a long time, and then I felt like I'm losing track, and I inserted great good things, discussed things, agreed with things, disagreed with things, and I thought, I don't even know what, where I am anymore in this commentary. I've done so much. So then I, I went through and I revised the whole thing again, you know, and um, I did that, and then I went back. I'm just reading representatively. There's no way. I'd never finish if I read everything on Revelation. But then I went back, and, and this is the process I'm still in. I'm, I'm doing the secondary sources again, uh, another, another pass through. And then I will, what I'll probably do when I finish this, and I'd say I'm 90% done. But I'm not, I'm not making as fast a progress because I'm traveling a little bit more and speaking a bit more and I'm teaching. So I had a sabbatical and then COVID has been a difficult thing, but I got a ton done during COVID because I wasn't going anywhere and, you know, all my trips were canceled, but now everything's kind of going back online. So who knows when I'll finish, but I'll do, I'll do that third walkthrough and then I'll probably hand it in. So I feel, I feel good about where I am. And, 
and I have, you know, Rob Plummer's teaching a class and uh, there's two students in that class who have sent me a bunch of corrections. So that's been great. So um, I'm sure my editor will catch the rest, but they've caught a lot. You know, when you're writing, there's so many little things mm. that you miss. I leave out a word of or the, or sometimes the sentence doesn't make sense or whatever, you know, so yeah. That's fascinating. I can't wait to read it uh, when it does come. And uh, if you could give me, this is one of the more technical questions, I guess. And for listeners, we'll put definitions in the show notes. We've done past episodes on eschatology. But um, if you were going to give me like a 30 to 60 second elevator pitch for why new creation millennialism um, is like the view to take on the millennium, what would you say? So currently I kind of hold a historic pre-mill view, which would uh, kind of how Jim Hamilton interprets the book, I would say. I really like his commentary and his work. Um, but what would your elevator pitch be? Yeah, I would say, I don't think any view is completely clear first. I, I would argue them. it's really hard to be sure. I've been, I've been, historic, well, probably if you look at my whole life, I've been dispensational, pre-mill, historic, pre-mill, and amill. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big, uh, that's a conversion over time for sure. Yeah, so, but what I like about new creation millennialism is I think it has the best features of the historic pre-mill and the best features of the amill. Okay. That, so I think that's what makes it attractive. I, I think there are problems with the view, though. I think there's problems with every view, but I think it has the least problems. So, but I don't know. I think the millennium is a very mysterious thing. And there's some people who think it's just even a symbol, right? Hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I, I, what's the reference, though? I'm not completely happy with that view. So, yes, you know, if you want to read about it uh, in, Eckhart Schnabel's book, 40 Questions on the End Times. I think that's the name of the book. His little chapter on the millennium represents this view. Awesome. See, and then one, one last question. So if you could have uh, God give you one clarification um, from the book of Revelation, you know, what would you, what would you ask? <laughs> oh man, no one's ever asked me that. That is such a great question. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, you can only pick one, <laughs> but you can you can list a few second or third or fourth choices afterwards. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, that is such a difficult question. Of course, you know, I mean, just as I'm thinking out loud of the 666, maybe, maybe I would pick what in the world's going on in chapter 17 with the listing of the kings? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, I find that very mysterious and hard to understand. Uh, I mean, I, I ultimately take it as symbolic, mm -hmm. but that is such a strange passage. 17, 9 through 11, right in there. Is that so, where he's, is that where he's kind of going back to like the king of Tyre from Ezekiel and everything? Or is that? No, that's where he says, you know, that's where, he, no, this is where he says, you know, there are five have fallen. Oh, uh, right. One is, one is not yet, and he'll be of the eighth. And so then people try to say, oh, does he start with Julius Caesar? That's one way. Does he start with Augustus? Or is he talking about empires? So if everybody tries to figure it out and it's really difficult so yeah that that's my choice that's really okay. good 
Uh, I'm glad that was a great question. Andre, good one. Thanks. <laughs> so, and, uh, oh, go yeah, ahead, Michael. No, go ahead. I was just going to say the, the last uh, question. I don't know if Michael's an asked or not, but I guess I'll go ahead and jump in here. Um, just a, a last encouragement to people as they go about uh, reading Revelation. I know a lot of people think it's an intimidating or confusing book, but just wanted to give you a chance to offer some encouragement to all of our listeners who may want to uh, start upon this journey. Yeah, I, I would say, remember when you read the book of Revelation, that it's fundamentally about the following. It's about God is the sovereign creator. Christ is the lamb is our redeemer. Those who trust and believe in Jesus will finally be rewarded. God will conquer evil. Uh, he, he will triumph. So what I want to say to people are oh, there's such strange things in Revelation. And I'll say, yeah, like God is the creator of the world and he rules over it. And like Jesus is the Messiah and the Lamb of God who redeems us from our sins. And what it means to be a Christian is to follow him. Obviously, right, I'm being a little bit sarcastic. The main themes of Revelation are found elsewhere in the New Testament. So don't be afraid of it. You know, you don't understand everything in the book. That's okay. We debate various things. But the main teachings are meant to encourage us and are found dressed in an apocalyptic garb. They're, but they're found elsewhere in the New Testament. So God wants you to read Revelation. He wants you to be encouraged. And so um, I'd say to pastors, I'd say to lay people, don't, don't stay away from it. I read it the first time as a new Christian. I was 17, a person who never read the Bible. And I had a lot of questions, but I was very encouraged by the book mm -hmm. because I recognized the major themes still came through. And I think that's, the, you know, no matter what your view, if you're dispensational, uh, you know, idealist, uh, whatever, the, those main themes still come through. That's so good. So helpful. And I got to say, like, I have the King and His Beauty and your Romans commentary right here. And I can't wait for your Revelation commentary to come out and to look at your shorter one. But besides things that you've written or are going to write on Revelation, what would you say are some of the best resources people should check out? Well, I mean, I think Greg Beale, I mean, that's a, his long commentary is very technical, but he has a shorter one too. Yeah, this shorter one's really good. Yeah, which has 550 pages. <laughs> that's an excellent commentary. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think Jim Hamilton's commentary is very accessible for people. Dennis Johnson, The Triumph of the Lamb is a very accessible, shorter commentary. If you want a longer commentary, I really like Stephen Smalley's commentary. I think that's really excellent. Um, if you're looking for a very technical commentary, Craig Kester is a good commentary, K-O-E-S-T-E-R. So that, yeah, there's a lot of good resources uh, out there. Uh, I think Bruce Metzger's little commentary, Breaking the Code, I think it's called, that's a really, it's short, but it's it's a very helpful uh, survey of the book of Revelation. So I've given you some longer and shorter ones. <laughs> I, every time I ask Michael for recommendations, I always tell him he needs to give me the shorter ones along with the, with the <laughs> I usually yeah. end up picking, picking, the, picking the shorter ones, but uh, just for some more fun questions that we've been asking all of our guests the past uh, couple of seasons. Uh, so are you a, a coffee drinker or do you have a favorite coffee drink? Uh, I'm a Christian, therefore I don't drink coffee. 
Okay, I'm kidding. But I don't drink coffee. I don't like coffee. I don't know why I never do. I like tea. You know, I'm a tea drinker. What kind of tea? What? What kind of tea? I drink, you know, my favorite kind of tea is it's called stash tea. It's a licorice, licorice spice tea. Yeah, so it's kind of a sweeter tea. And uh, I don't like licorice, but I like this licorice tea. So that's my favorite. Yeah. Interesting. I'll have to check that out. I like uh, Earl Grey black tea and stuff like that. London yeah. Black, but Let's see, it's interesting because I don't like black. So, I mean, technically herbal teas aren't tea, right? So uh, I don't like black tea. And I think it's because I'm not a fan of caffeine. Isn't that? Okay. <laughs> oh, you know, black tea. I don't, I, I, I don't love it. I'm sure there's something weird with me because 95% of the people in the world like black like caffeine but i don't like caffeine you know so when i have black tea i think well i don't like it it doesn't taste good <laughs> that's really funny that's really good and uh this is a question andre came up with i think a season or two ago but maybe in the last three or six months recently though who's a christian could be near you or just somebody a thinker you've been reading or something but uh who's a what's it who's a christian that's been really influential on you Oh, oh, the last three or six months, that's hard for me to say, but um, I would say, hmm. Don't be, don't be scared to say your son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah my, well, Patrick has really encouraged me uh, recently. I, I guess I'd say I've, um, I don't know if it's recently, but I'd say I've always been really encouraged by reading John Frame. Okay. I love John Frame. He's always been a huge encouragement to me. So, I've never I've never read anything by him. He wrote like a doctrine of the word of God, right? And some other yeah. stuff. Oh, it's great. He's fantastic. So I love I love Frame's stuff. I, I like his stuff. He has a book on contemporary worship music. I've read a lot of things. I like his book on apologetics. So He's got a book out now on philosophy. I didn't read that, but I listened to uh, all his lectures on it. Oh, wow. So they were really good. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Awesome. That's great. And so uh, we just want to thank you so much for joining us. There was so much insight and so much wisdom. And we uh, we will link everything you said in the show notes, uh, your shorter commentary, the book you have coming out. Um, I can't wait till your new commentary comes out as well. But Dr. Schreiner, thank you for joining us today. It was such a privilege to talk to you. Well, it's been great to be with you, Michael. And and Andre, have a great weekend. You too. Okay. Bye-bye.